Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. Thanks a lot to the folks at CloudFlight for sponsoring my podcast. They are successfully helping an industry facing digitalization pressure to identify and solve their AI use cases. Today, their COO, Jörn, is my guest to have a two-minute chat about the topic. Hi, Jörn. Great to have you on the show. Let's talk about AI. It's a very hot topic for a while, and we want to talk about the importance of AI. So what is the importance of AI at CloudFlight? Yeah, hi, Tobias. Um, thanks for having me. Um, I would say the industry is facing a lot of uh, digitization pressures. And at the same time, AI is almost omnipresent in private life. This leads to many people talking about AI. And this is precisely where the problem lies. Most of the people talk about the technology behind AI. But at CloudFlight, um, it's not the technology. Uh, that is the key to success. But understanding the needs of business and their users. What do you mean by needs and what are the implications? I would say the challenges differs almost with the companies. Um, the same is true for the associated processes. Nevertheless, um, people often try to map individual needs with standard software. And we consider um, that's to be difficult. In the specific case of AI, um, there's also the fact that people often try to create a use case come hell or high water. The technology Zeus becomes on and end at itself. I understand. Um, so... What do you as CloudFlight uh, think is the right approach to use AI successfully? First, um, use cu um, custom solutions. And second, before starting, um, you should, and this is even more important, take a close look at where potentials can be leveraged with AI. At CloudFlight, uh, we do this with a structured approach and our AI patterns. The aim here is to quantify the added value of individual measures in an open-ended manner. Instead of looking at projects from a pure cost perspective, the focus is on the return on investment. But why should corporate decision makers now also be concerned with AI? Tobias, it's simple. Uh, to be able to run the business more successfully. AI can help innovating existing business models, increase competitiveness, and optimize production and business processes. And for sure, all beginnings aren't easy. But it's usually worthwhile to get started. And... Of course, we at Cloudfly are happy to help. That sounds great because I know so many cases where, yeah, you think you have a case for AI and you start implementing something and you end up with a mess. Uh, and I think having a partner there really makes sense. So if you, my listeners, um, also think that this makes sense and want to, want to get to know more about Cloudflight and the AI offering, Just visit cloudflight.io slash transformation to get to know more.
Welcome to the Alphalist Podcast. I am your host, Toby. And today I have a special guest. He's not a CTO. His name is Patrick, and he's the founder of ProfitWell. And ProfitWell was recently acquired by Paddle for, I think, 200 million or something. So he's a rich, rich man as well. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Now, now I'm going to be targeted. Welcome, yeah. welcome, welcome, Patrick, um, to the show. Uh, happy to have you on board. Yeah, good to be here. I, I especially like that I get to be a non-CTO on a CTO podcast because it makes me insecure. And now I'll now I'll have to prove myself to everyone and hopefully give give some good good value here, which will be good. I'm I'm, I'm sure you deliver. I'm sure you deliver. So uh, today we we're, we're here to talk about pricing. Um, and I always ask for the nerd journey of my guest. And I also, um, ask Patrick, like, how did you become a pricing nerd? And do you maybe have other nerdy aspects in your life that, that, uh, could make me call you a nerd? Yeah. Um, so I, it's all about levels, right? I thought I was a pretty big nerd and then you meet some really big nerds and you're just like, oh, you are, you are up there. Right. Um, yeah, I think my, my nerd journey I my my background's in econometrics and math, so you know that that level of of nerddom. I think I I I lucked into a pretty unique set of skills because not only was that kind of my interest in in my background, but I also ended up um, going to school in a debate scholarship. So I did speech and debate in high school and college, and when you can kind of combine you know um, more of the communication you know skills with kind of the econ and math skills. Um, it's a pretty interesting cocktail that, you know, has served me really, really well. And so I never wanted to be in business. Never. I never wanted to focus on pricing. It wasn't like I grew up and I was six years old and had a pricing manual or something like that. No, it was, um, I, uh, I actually started my career. I worked in U.S. intelligence in DC. So I was an Intel analyst, um, uh, at NSA. And so it was one of those things where it was extremely eye-opening because, um, you're you're basically doing puzzles all day um, or over quarters or weeks, you know, depending on what you're working on. And I think that I kind of fell in love with with puzzles on that level, but I wouldn't say I'm the 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 top of the puzzle heap because there are people who love just buying puzzles and doing puzzles. I just like the I like puzzles that have a purpose, if that makes sense. And normally those uh, there's a lot of those in business. There's a lot of those in product. Um, and so that's that's kind of the nerd journey and Throw in a little uh, Magic: The Gathering and Warhammer as a kid, and you know, I think I think I'm at least at the nerd table. I'm not at the head of the nerd table, but I'm at least at the table. So, yeah, yeah. My listeners listeners can also not see you, uh, but you're wearing a hoodie, and that that at least makes you like a little bit of a nerd as well. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. I didn't know if we were doing video or not, so I was like, I at least need to look somewhat presentable. But uh, yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> So, um, can you tell us a bit more about ProfitWell? Totally. Um, so, ProfitWell, uh, where is interesting? So, I, you know, went from uh, working in the Intel community to working at Google. Um, I was not enamored with like super bureaucratic uh, institutions, which both the government and a giant tech company both are. I didn't know that they would be. I just, you know, was was a naive kid, and I jumped into the startup world and. At this company called Jimvara, which is a competitor to like Blue Nile, they do um, uh, customizable jewelry. So imagine, you know, 
you have one point, you know, six million different SKUs because of all the permutations of, you know, this color, this metal, et cetera. So I was given pricing, you know, to work on there for the first time. And it was one of those things where um kind of took to it like a fish to water. I think it was mostly because I was looking for a challenge that, you know, was a puzzle. And so ended up um not being enamored with that culture either. You're seeing a theme. So I jumped out and I was like in my early uh to mid twenties. It was basically like, if I'm going to start something, I don't have a mortgage, don't have kids, like it's the time to do it. Uh, and so just was me in a room for 18 hours a day trying to figure this out <laughs> for, for the first nine months and um, started building a, a pricing product that kind of moved into a pricing product and service. And to kind of like really kind of skip to the end as much as possible, um, we morphed into a um, pr a product line that helps subscription companies grow automatically. So if you're a subscription company, you could plug in ProfitWell um, and we gave you free subscription financial reporting. So all of your financial metrics and reporting for free. Um, that product's used by about 37,000 different subscription and SaaS companies now. And then we would study that data and aggregate. It would train our algorithms and we would make money by selling you a product that lowered your cancellations or churn automatically um, or optimized your pricing automatically. Uh, and so that was kind of the path. And then we had other products basically planned into the future um, before we we got bought. Um, we were a bootstrap company and we were looking to raise money for the first time um, in 2021. Um, and then um, started talking to Christian at Paddle and some other folks. And Christian was like, well, what if we bought you? And I was like, no, you can't have my baby. Uh, I can't have it, right? And then it was just ego. And I realized like, oh, if you know these six things are checked off, then of course we should sell because this is another way to get more resources for the mission, um, which you know inevitably was what ended up happening. And so Paddle exists to run subscription companies automatically. So again, you plug it in and you know all your tax, all of your payments, infrastructure, everything, all of your currency symbols, everything's taken care of. When I say automatically, it's not like here's a WYSIWYG editor with like, you know, email workflows. It's like, no, 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 we just do it. Like it's just taken care of, which is kind of, I think, the the future of product. But yeah, so now we exist to, to run and grow subscription companies automatically. So that's kind of the, the ProfWell up to paddle story. So you're now fully integrated or? Define fully integrated. <laughs> yeah, so we are, um, we are, yeah, integrations. I was, I was super naive about integrations. I thought you know, oh, we, you know, of course you just, you know, the visions make sense. The mission makes sense. They didn't have a CPO leader. We have a good CPO leader. We didn't have a CMO. They have a CMO. We'll just like copy paste these teams underneath this and the org structure and everything will be great. Right. I don't understand why integrations are so hard, but then you get in and you're like, not only is it all the tooling and stuff like that that you have to take care of. Um, but then on top of that, you're dealing with just people, trust, building all of these things over again. And so, yeah, I think we're, we are, FY23, we are, we are like fully integrated in terms of like mission, most of the tooling, most of the RevOps infrastructure, all that kind of fun stuff. So I think we did it in, in a really short amount of time, but it was not without its, uh, its pain points just in terms of like, just all kinds of stuff like, you know, people not being able to get into the system or that system, nothing, nothing too crazy, but just a, a lot of little paper cuts of trying to figure everything out. But essentially it should be as easy as just like 
moving transactions from one system to another and just analyzing everything, right? Um. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, that's super simple. Attribution's amazing, right? Yeah. But it's like, no, it's it's insane how, um, so we knew this from building our metrics product, like how difficult like accuracy is just in general, like with data, because um, I think people on this podcast will appreciate it, but I think, uh, let's just say the non-technical minded folks don't appreciate, they're just like, well, the graph should just, the numbers should be right. And it's like, yeah, but if you're porting in Stripe data or any billing data or event data, especially which you need to get for accuracy, the complexity of getting event data to be clean and like accurate and then do that across thousands of companies, like it's a really tough problem. And this is partially why Profit was free is because people just don't appreciate how hard of a problem it is to pay anything substantial. And this is why most analytics companies either go up market, um, you know, just die, unfortunately, um, or go free, which is, you know, the option that we basically chose. Um, and so I think when kind of combining the companies, we saw a lot of those problems over again, not, not related to accuracy necessarily, but just like, you know, combining slacks that that's a, that's an initiative, unfortunately, you know, to deal with slack and what do you do with the history and legal counsel has to get involved, all these other things. Cause we want to make sure, you know, obviously we, we stay compliant and everything. And so, yeah, it's, 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 if thinking made it so, uh, it would be easy, but unfortunately there's a lot of work, uh, downstream to be taken care of. And, uh, will you be on board long-term or? Yeah, that's my intention. I think, um, it kind of depends on like, you know, a lot of things, right? I think I was very certain of many things uh, in the beginning, like before the, like, I think this was just my founder brain trying to like rationalize things. And I was like, we're doing this and blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, I don't know, I've, I've learned in the past six months to be less certain um, or try to be less certain. And I think that for me, like, as long as I'm having fun and as long as like, I feel like we're building a 10x company from where we are. Like, why wouldn't I stay, right? Like, it's hard enough building, you know, ProfitWell and then trying to build this paddle product, right? Or paddle company, you know? And I think that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, it is it is a little bit more hard, a little bit more difficult post an exit when you have, you know, money in the bank where you're like, there's plenty of existential crises I've had and probably still I'm going to have over the last six months and the next six months because all of a sudden you're just, you're just vaulted into a very different like mindset because you have a lot of optionality. Um, and it's, you know, it, it probably doesn't sound like a good thing to talk about because it's like not everyone can relate and I'm not complaining. Trust me. It's just one of those things that, uh, you know, a lot more soul searching than I anticipated, you know, post exit. can't imagine. Can't imagine. Um, so uh, let's talk about, about pricing a bit more. Um, let's and, do it. And, and deep dive there. Uh, so first of all, like personal interest, you must see like lots of transactions. Um, and um, I guess you you can still use Python notebooks uh, and, and and you every once in a while do that um, and, and analyze all the stuff. Uh, what do you think about recession? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that, um, so we, we should always have context, right? And I think that recession is this like loaded term um, that the media especially in the US. I don't know who's who's listening from where, but in the US, it's like a lot of fear-mongering and I'm sure it's very similar around the world. Um, a recession basically just means that there's a contraction that happens in the economy. It is part of the natural kind of life cycle of economies. Like 
you know, you get booms and then you hopefully don't want busts. You want like these slow contractions. And what it basically means is like in aggregate, you're having some of that contraction. And the reason I, I put that out there is because there are certain markets in recessions that actually accelerate. There are certain markets that are protected. There are certain markets that get hit really hard. And so it's a little bit more of a complicated um, complicated situation for most companies than, than a lot of them think. Um, and I think that some folks are overreacting, some people are underreacting. But to answer your question directly, so we have access to um, you know billions and bil- tens of billions of dollars in annual revenue under the the subscription and SaaS space. And when we look at the data, and we look at the data pretty frequently, what we were able to see is that for the first time since 2008, um, B2B SaaS, the, the vertical, is actually starting to flatten a bit. Now, when I say flatten, that does not mean it's still not going up. It just means it was going up, let's say, at a 45-degree angle, and now it's going up at like a 30-degree angle, right? You know, And so it's, 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 it's coming down. And the reason that that's happening is is most of the time, if you take a step back, there there could have been recessions in 2012 and 2015. But the reason that didn't occur there is because you saw consumer contraction, but B2B markets tend to be so much larger than consumer, consumer markets. And so we were protected when those consumer markets get hit. Now, consumer markets, and I'm making these angles up, but you know, maybe was at a 45-degree angle and consumer markets went down to like a 15-degree angle. So that's what's really driving what's going on right now. And then what ends up happening is B2B companies react to what's happening in consumer markets, then consumer markets react to B2B, and then this is where you get a recession. And so to give you some more practical ways to look at it, the underpinnings of this data look very, very similar to what happened in 2008. And we have data going back all the way to like the 2001 um, you know, downturn as well in tech. But we don't have the same markers of what happened in 2008, meaning there doesn't appear to be, and I don't know, but a giant exogenous impact like the housing market crashing, right? You know, we don't have something like that. And so the TLDR for folks listening, and there's a reason economists only make predictions in the past. So, you know, it's one one guy's opinion looking at the data. Um, it looks like a run-of-the-mill vanilla recession. It's not going to snap back as quickly as... Um, you know, it did in the COVID crisis because COVID, it was an artificial recession and then, you know, things opened back up relatively quickly. Um, but it's probably not going to be 2008 where it was like, you know, a really bad few years because of how things were. Um, average recession at um, lasts about 18 months. If I was a betting man, I would say it's going to be a rough 2023 and then it might take us six months to realize we're out of it. So it might put us at, you know, 18 months. But might be closer to 12. Um, it's really hard just based on like what a lot of central banks are doing. Um, but yeah, that's the data we're seeing. And, and to give you a, one more little practical bit, and I'm happy to go deeper of like what people are doing to react to this, because I think that's useful as well. Um, you're seeing new revenue start to dry up a little bit. And then we haven't seen all of the churn, I believe, that's going to happen, except in the consumer market. We've seen a lot of churn. And then I think there's going to be some some last bits of churn happen in the B2B market. Um, yeah, and then all of a sudden, Papa Powell uh, in the U.S. will will stop, you know, raising rates, and we'll kind of keep the rates, and that'll be the signal that we're kind of like at the end of the beginning, and you know, going through the middle, yeah, and then yeah, yeah. kind of going from there. So yeah, yeah people, that's, just, that's hopefully some helpful thoughts. I, I think a lot of people thought that this is going to happen in December already, right? Um, it's tough. I mean, th- there's it's it's kind of like traffic. If we all just agreed not to be in a recession, we wouldn't be in a recession. 
Like yeah. everyone's just reacting to everyone else, right? Yeah, and yeah, this is yeah. where when you're in a traffic jam and there's no there's no car wreck or anything like that, you're like, why were we just in a traffic jam? It was because everyone just like started slowing down, right? And so I think that that's that's the thing that's really tough. And I think that every Black Friday, Cyber Monday holiday season is is bigger than the next the last one, except for 2009. But every single one has been bigger. Than, so everyone's like, oh, we had a great like Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Maybe we're not in a recession. It's like every Black Friday, Cyber Monday is great, you know? And so it's just like one of those things that you kind of have to be careful. And this is why, because it's so predicated on economic psychology, it's just so tough to like understand like, you know, how deep it's going to go. And then all of a sudden, like, I don't know, theoretically, there's a probability that the Fed in the US is like, no, we're going to drop rates. And then all of a sudden the market will go crazy again. And, you know, investors will want to invest more money and then that'll affect the company. But I, I doubt that's going to happen, but it's, it's just, it, there's so much, uh, there's so many of those animal spirits that Adam Smith talked about back in the day that actually impact things, um, which makes it hard to react to. And um, yeah, but I think the fundamentals from a business perspective are are always right. Like they're always right. The fundamentals have never been wrong. You know, acquiring customers cheaply enough, monetizing them, expanding the revenue on them, and then keeping the money around or keeping them around as long as possible all of that is true in good times and bad times. I just think the last two years we were kind of like drunk on, you know, free money and we all were drunk. It's fine. It's not, you know, any one yeah, person yeah, yeah. over another. And um, now it's like, oh, we have to remember like the fundamentals again, which, you know, is it's hard, you know, it's hard to be disciplined. Yeah. Yeah. And then suddenly, suddenly switching to a mode where, where profit is, uh, is actually yeah. <laughs> important. Right. Um, but but I think like also part of the companies that did huge layoffs. Um, like I mean, I think Meta started with that. Mm. Um, they 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 just use recession uh, and that everyone is talking about it as a, as an excuse for an like non healthy business, right? Um, and 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 and, and yeah. just lay off people. Um, so that is what what I think is also weird uh, right now, right? That like lot lots of companies just overhired during COVID. Um, uh, like after they yeah. they realized, okay, COVID is not is not bad for my business. It's actually good for my business. And then they overhired, and then now they let go people, right? I think that's a big thing too. Is like there are companies that are using this as an excuse. Like Meta got hit but their cash is pretty good, right? I, I think it's just, you're, you're seeing, I just kind of remember like 2019, like like the whole, there's a downturn coming. Everyone starts saying this because, you know, we had many years of like good bull runs, right? And I think that um, it, it's, we had a decade plus and really two decades because I think even in 2008, like 2008 affected tech, but it didn't affect tech as much as I think a lot of us think it did. Not like 2001, right? So you could argue in tech, we had two decades of really, really good growth. But I think that what happened, especially in the last decade, was, you know, tech wages are up about 30, I think, I think it's 34% in the past five years. And team tenure is down about the same, 33%. So you have this spread of like how painful it's been to like hire and also keep talent and how expensive talent's becoming. And I think that's because like, I don't know, if you're in tech, you can find a job. Like you can find one. And it's a very privileged place to be in tech, even if you're a support person. It doesn't necessarily need to be as technical or anything like that, right? And so I think that 
that age is where people are almost, or these larger companies are almost taking advantage of the opportunity of like, well, everyone's kind of letting people go. Like we need to reshift our focus to profitability because it appears we're heading into an era of profitability, but who knows how long that'll last, right? Because we said that in 2019, 2015, and 2012, and it never came. <laughs> like it never came. And so I think this is different because, you know, of what's happening in the market. But again, economists make predictions in the past. They don't make them in the future. So yeah, it's just interesting. Uh, obviously, obviously uh, interesting. So um, let's get deep down and dirty with pricing. Um, let's Let's imagine I'm a founder of a B2B SaaS company bootstrapped. Uh, I have, let's say, two pricing tiers and I just I just made them up at the very beginning. And I, I, I actually don't know anything about pricing and I just wanna 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 get started. Like where should I start? Yeah. So I think the first thing if if you enter if you uh, entertain me for a moment is just realizing what you're trying to do with pricing. I think a lot of people think it's just the number, but they don't realize like how many other things impact that number or that perception of the number. And so at a very, very high level, and you know, bear with me for a second, you're, you've created some sort of value as a business. And then you're saying, you know, because we don't trade goat for wheat in the economies we're playing in, you're basically saying this value is worth this much, right? And when we go one step deeper, what that means is that everything in your business from your sales and your marketing all the way down to your engineering and product teams is used to drive someone to a point of conversion or to justify the value, the product, and the price of that particular product. And so there's a lot of things that influence that exchange rate on value that your price is. Who you sell to, like going up market, down market, different verticals, how you package the products, like what your value metric is, you know, going up or down. Um, what ends up happening with, do we put this feature in this tier? Do we make this feature into an add-on? And then obviously the actual number, the actual price. And so I think the thing to think about is first realize pricing and experimentation around pricing has, has a much, much wider, you know, kind of remit than just the number. And then also realizing that that means this is going to be a little bit more complicated internally because it's not just a product person realizing, oh, we should do X and collecting some data. It turns into like, oh, I'm going to collect that data, but then I got to go get buy-in from John and sales and Judy and customer success and Peter and marketing and so on and so forth. And so I think that's the thing. First thing is realize, um, you know, that this is a little more complicated. And to give a little bit of a list, um, you know, one quarter you might do a localization strategy where you adjust your pricing across different geographies rather than having the same price overall. Another quarter you might fix your value metric, like how you charge per user, per videos, et cetera. The next quarter you might actually increase your prices for the first time in three years. You know, the quarter after that you might change up your discounting strategy. There's just a lot of stuff you can do. Beyond that, where you should start, whether you're early stage or later stage, doesn't really matter. You should evaluate or reevaluate that value metric that I was talking about. Um, and the value metric is how you charge uh, per user, per video, per thousand contacts. Um, it matters for your business, but doesn't really matter what it is in, in, in the grand scheme of things. Um, but it's one of those things where you want to make sure that, that whatever you're charging on is right for your business. And then you want to make sure however much you're giving away for whatever tier, or if you're doing something like an AWS where you're charging almost on, or Twilio where you're charging on almost API call and those types of things, you want to make sure that that's adjusted. And the reason for this being the most important piece, and it's not the easiest thing to do, but it's the most important, 
is because if you get this right, your value metric, if you get it right, everything else in your pricing can be suboptimal and you're going to be fine. And the reason is, is because if you think about it, you're baking growth into your pricing. So if I use 10 users and then three months later, I'm using 20 users, you don't have to like reconvince me to buy by upgrading to another tier. You just send me an email and say, hey, congrats, you guys must be growing. That's awesome. We're just going to bump you up to the 20 tier plan, but let us know if you have any questions, right? So you just get this natural expansion revenue. And you also make sure that when Disney comes in and wants a thousand seats, you're not charging them the same amount of money as some Johnny or Jane startup who only wants five seats. And so that's the most powerful thing from a physics perspective um, when it comes to pricing that I always recommend to start with. And if you're really good at that, then there's a whole world that you can get into in terms of all the things that I was talking about with pricing. But that's that. those are the two first things that I would think about is realize it's a little more complicated um, and maybe really figuring out your value metric. And is that... Um... Or would you say that in most companies, founders underestimate pricing? Oh, 100%. Um, the average amount of time spent on pricing in a business uh, per year is less than 15 hours. Um, so we did a big, big research project on this a few years ago. So like, if you really think about it, and, and that's not like 15 hours a month or a quarter, that's 15 hours a year. Um, we typically don't see pricing changes of any kind, not just the number, but changing up the packaging, changing up X, Y, or Z, whatever it is, all but once every three years. So we're not changing it that often. And even when we're changing, we're not spending a ton of time on it. And the, the problem there, just to make sure it's really, really clear, is you have three growth levers in your business, acquiring a customer, monetizing them, and then retaining them. And if you're not doing anything with the middle one, you're not really doing anything with retention either. Like you're doing more than with pricing. All like something like 60 to 65% of budgets go to sales and marketing typically in like growth companies. Um, and so it's just kind of amazing. It's like, well, you're missing out on a very big growth lever. Um, it's also one of the most effective growth levers, like improving pricing pound for pound um, has a bigger impact than improving your acquisition or even your retention. Um, but it is one of those things that like you have to focus on it. And most people don't do anything with their pricing because I think it's one, it's 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 that middle nature of it. Like they're like, oh, this is going to be hard because I have to go get everyone's buy-in on something. But I think it's also like they don't, they, they think it's this like black box. And oftentimes pricing is just like any other process within your business. It's just like product development, marketing development, you know, kind of setting up, you know, how are you going to do deployment? It's the same thing. You just got to think through the problem. You got to deploy. You got to figure out, oh, there was a mistake. Let's, you know, bring it back, like those types of things. Um, and when people start to realize it, it's just a process. They tend to do a lot better with it because they realize there's going to be, you know, a, you know, over time, there's going to be a lot of changes versus, you know, thinking it's like a one and done exercise. But isn't it a problem that, um, like also tech-wise, in many cases, it's very baked into the product that that you you I mean you have your pricing tiers on your on your pricing page most likely, uh, but then like everything else is like deeply tied into the product. Um, how how can you solve that? Yeah, I th yeah I think the problem is um, so I was talking about value metrics before, right? When I started ProfitWell, then called Price Intelligently only 7% of SaaS companies were using a value metric of some sort. This was like 2013, 2012. 
And what was interesting about that is when you when you were talking about why, and, and to maybe skip to last year, it was about 53% of companies. So we've, we've seen this major shift. And when you really think about why, one, it's because of the growth implications that I mentioned. Um, companies using a value metric, they're typically growing at about double the rate as those using feature differentiation. Um, and that's because the churn is typically about half um, of those using feature differentiation. Their expansion revenue is about double. But the other thing was, is that billing systems were so bad or so cumbersome that it was actually really difficult to connect the pricing, the billing to the product, right? Whether you're gating a feature or whether you're, you know, adjusting and measuring usage data, like just measuring usage data like 10, 15 years ago was like a thing. Like you needed an entire team. Now you just have a couple of tools and some of these problems still aren't solved. But I think that's the thing where like billing and payments infrastructure has advanced to the point where like if you're if you're listening to this and you are over, I'm just gonna put it's a little arbitrary, but it's not directionally incorrect. If you're over like three to five million in ARR and you're just using Stripe, like you are setting yourself up for not doing so many optimizations down the road unless you have a dedicated billing team, which if you're three to five million in revenue, you should not have a dedicated billing team, in my opinion. So and the reason for that is because if you're using a subscription manager like a Chargebee or Recurly, or you're using a merchant of record like Paddle, you have so many more levers that you can pull without needing to use the engineering team's resources. Like there should never be a, oh, well, this is the right pricing change, but it's going to cost us a hundred grand in engineering resources, you know, to do that. Like that should never be a conversation that takes place. And when you're using the right tool stack, it ends up not not being a, something cumbersome. Like I can go into Paddle right now and just like change our price. And, you know, obviously we should not just do that. We should announce it and do a bunch of other things. But like, it's not a technical challenge versus most of the time, if you're, even if you're using Stripe, if you're an indie hacker and you can like quickly put stuff together, it's a little bit different. But I think it's just one of those things where this build versus buy like challenge oftentimes gets in the way of like optimizing your business and especially with pricing. But but even if you use Paddle, you have to build in some hooks into your code and stuff like that, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's still it's not it's not as seamless or automatic as I would like it to be. Yeah. Um, for any for any system, but for the most part, if you once you set up something like a Paddle, things downstream are taken care of, right? When you're using and and on the back end, a Paddle is like you know, Stripe and WorldPay and a couple of other things, right? Like for actually processing the payments. But it's one of those things where I think that people don't understand like what that billing stack actually looks like, especially from a, a CTO or like even a CFO perspective. Like they think it's all the same. Like we, we get asked all the time, like, oh, you're, you guys are like, we choose you or Stripe. And we're like, no, 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 no. Like that's, that's not what's happening. Like, you know, what's happening is, is like Stripe's on the back end of us for the payments, but there's all this stuff above the payments, right? And even then, like, Stripe isn't as good in Eastern Europe. So that's why I use checkout.com and we were able to route these different things. And so it's just like, how, how much work do you want to put on yourself for that optimization versus like going with like a third party vendor or something like that? And there's some reasons, like if you're Netflix, you have a team, your billing team is 150 people. That's the size of Netflix's team. They need to use like not just Stripe. They got to use Stripe, Adyen, you know, still some auth.net. There's a bunch of like regional payment things and they have to build all of this stuff internally for themselves. Um, but I I just, it's one of those things where I think like that's a big mistake a lot of teams make is they they keep 
too thin of a tool stack here too long, and then it prevents them from doing optimizations around pricing, but also retention. Um, and I would argue with product-led growth, it also keeps them from doing a lot of optimizations around like self-serve and signups. And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of solutions out there. It's, it doesn't have to just be Paddle. Um, although obviously, I have a vested interest in, in Paddle. But uh, you know, there's a lot of tools that are, are are out there depending on your like facts and circumstance around your particular business. Paddle, Chargebee, Stripe subs subscriptions, stuff like that, right? Um, yeah, but, but it depends on like how deep you want to go, right? Like, yeah, yeah. you know, so if the way I would describe, here's the metaphor. It will not show up in marketing at all because I think it's it's a little too complicated. But here's like the metaphor like I think about. So like Stripe payments is like the roads, right? Adyen payments, the roads, Braintree payments. Those are like the roads, um, you know, processing a payment for Visa. And we won't get deep into like how the roads work because the roads get very complicated very quickly with like Visa, MasterCard, et cetera, right? And banks, you know, in between. Then you have like a Chargebee or Recurly or Chargeify. Those are like trucks on the roads, right? So they like package the subscription. They understand like the route they need to take in order to get processed. And then you have these, and, and that's where like Stripe subscriptions also is, right? So like that's that's the truck on the road. It packages the subscription. When you have like a merchant of record, like Paddle or Lemon Squeezy or some of these other folks out there, it's almost like a like a a 3PL or a, a complete like logistics network. Because in some cases, we want to drive down a Stripe road. In other cases, we want to drive down a Braintree road or an Adyen road, depending on like the payment acceptance rate in a particular, most of the time, country or region. Um, but we also like take care of all the tax, right? So like, this is what's kind of interesting and, and a little frustrating sometimes about, you know, because we charge like a flat rate of 5% and people are like, oh, that's super, super expensive. But it's like, well, if you use Stripe payments, subscriptions, and Stripe tax, you're paying in some countries 8 to 10%. And then on top of that, you still have to actually file like the taxes and send the payment and the paperwork. You know, for us, it's like 5%. We're doing all this like logistics that I'm talking about. And on top of it, you don't see a bill. Like we send the money to Venezuela for that Venezuelan customer. We send the money to wherever. And so it's just kind of interesting, like, like, I think that the way I would think about the journey is today, like if it was like 10 years ago, you just didn't really have a lot of options. Like maybe you went with like a Recurly or something like that after a Stripe or a Braintree and still use Stripe on the back end. Now I think like a merchant of record is like the smartest thing to do because you don't want your team distracted by some of these things that can be automated. Like machines are better at a lot of this stuff. So like use the machines rather than like, a back office person who, you know, is nice, but obviously should be working on more strategic work. And at least that's my opinion. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's, let's say, let's say I, I, I picked Paddle as, as the tool of choice. How do I effectively come to the magic number? How do I figure out my, <laughs> the, the best price? I mean, <laughs> playing very naive yeah. here. Uh, how do I effectively first test yeah. it? Like, do I ask my users or... Like, is there a strategy to, to yeah. effectively ask users, or do I just test it uh, on the pricing page, or what? What is your, your yeah, yeah, your, your recommendation there? Yeah. So you don't you need to use Paddle to do anything I'm about to say. So this is this is more <laughs> more of a more fundamental. So the here's the perfect. Let me let me start with perfection, which none of you are going to be able to do, but hopefully, like, shows the framework, and then let me work backwards. So perfection would be a multivariate test, right? 
So let's just take a very average SaaS company. You got three tiers, maybe three or four features differentiated within those tiers. Um, And depending on like how many features you have differentiated, you might have like 80 plus technically permutations of your pricing page, right? If you really think about all of it. Now in a perfect world, perfect world that like Amazon can do or some big consumer companies can do, we would run a test of all those permutations or even just an A-B test, depending on what the change we were going to do. And Amazon can do a price test in like 30 seconds. That's how much traffic they get, right? It's pretty wild, right? Um, A lot of people think, oh, I'll do A-B tests. Problem is, you don't have enough traffic. None of you do. Like, I almost guarantee you, unless for some reason there's someone from Amazon or Walmart or some giant company, um, you know, on here, which I hope for your podcast audience. But the thing to kind of keep in mind is the reason you don't have enough traffic is because in a subscription space, you're not just looking for the completes, meaning the conversion. You're also looking to the LTV and the retention, right? Because plenty of people will convert and you'll be like, oh, that $10 price test was right. It's like, well, they were converting because of the $10, but then they were leaving immediately because they just weren't the right customers, right? So if we can't A-B test or we can't A-B test uh, or we only have traffic for one A-B test or a split test, what do we do? Well, you kind of hinted at it. We go talk to our customers. And I know people are like scared to talk to their customers about price, but here's the thing. Your customers know things cost money right? And so what you got to do is you have to ask in the right way. Um, human beings and economists and psychologists have studied this for a long time. So this isn't, you know, me bringing this up. Um, we think about value as a spectrum. We don't think about a value as a single point. So if I asked you like how much this cup should be, it's actually kind of a hard question for you to answer. And the reason it's a hard question for you to answer is because you immediately go to, well, have I purchased a cup lately? Or is that worth more or less than this last thing I purchased? Again, that spectrum type thinking that you have. But if I asked you, is this cup worth more than my phone? You would be, it would be easy for you to say no, right? Now, if I put you in a situation where you were in the desert for three days without water, all of a sudden this cup would be worth more because all of a sudden our change of value has, has or the, the perception of value has changed in our heads. So we can take advantage of that. And there's a bunch of different ways that you can actually use this to your advantage. Um, The one I really like to use, the model I really like to use, is this thing called Van Westendorp. Um, It's this Dutch economist. He came up with this way of asking some ranged questions. Um, But there's other models out there depending on how much money and time you have. Um, Van Westendorp isn't the, the most accurate model, but in terms of how cheap it is in a time basis and how much you get out of it, it's really, really good. The questions are something like to this effect. At what point would this be way too expensive that you would never consider purchasing it? At what point is it getting expensive, but you'd still consider purchasing it? At what point is it a really good deal? And at what point is it too cheap that you question the quality of it? And most non-US companies, that last question is really, really important. We just historically see a lot of non-US companies are priced way too low. And we'll see a lot of non-U.S. companies will raise their prices, and not only will their um, their revenue per customer increase, but also their conversion rates will increase. And so those four questions, and there's other you know question sets you can do, that'll get you probably with some data cleaning to plus or minus 20, 25% of your real willingness to pay. Now, you might be thinking like, oh, that's still a big range. And yeah, it definitely is a range. But when you're just starting out, and I would argue until you have enough like customer base where 5% matters, 
I'm just trying to figure out, am I a $10 product, a $100 product, a $1,000 product? I'm not trying to figure out, am I $10 or $11, right? So collecting that data is really, really powerful. Now, if you have a math background, an econ background, you can get the accuracy down, you know, pretty, pretty well. So with a little bit of extra modeling, you can probably get it down to about plus or minus 10 to 15%. Over the past 10 years, we've gotten it down to about plus or minus 3%, um, but we created software to do a lot of this. And so that's the best way to do it. And keep in mind, you're trying to figure out what ballpark you should be in. So if I'm on sales calls, like I won't ask all three of these questions, but if I'm trying to do some pricing research, you and I might be talking, I'm demoing you a product, I'm trying to ask you some questions. And then what I'll do is I'll go, all right, well, at what point is this way too expensive? Like you're not going to return my next call. You'll like struggle a little bit. You'll give me some data. And then I'll go, well, at what point is it a good deal that you'll sign the contract today? And just with those two questions, I now across maybe 10 to 15 people, I might have like the loose range of where I'm at. And then I can, you know, take into some other considerations, my CAC, my LTV, those types of things. Um, and I can kind of go from there. And so it's a, it's a really good model. And then the second question I liked, or the second set of questions I like to ask, something called max diff. Um, and all this is, is asking about features. Because oftentimes, people who like certain features are willing to pay different amounts. Um, and it's really good to know. So this question is really simple. If I showed you like that demo and I said, cool, we talked about these five modules or these five features, out of that list, what's the most important to you? You'll struggle a little bit, you'll answer the question. And then I'll go, what's the least important to you? And across 10 to 15 people, I can actually get a look. And obviously, if you want to ask hundreds of people, you can get even, even cleaner data. But I can start to figure out like, oh, this segment or this group, they really care about these two things. They don't really care about these things at all. Why are we prioritizing our roadmap on these features? Um, or why are we putting that as a value driver within our pricing? But those questions in both qualitative ways, just like I was talking about, or like doing it through survey methods and then obviously cleaning the data um, are really, really powerful for you to kind of like vector on like what the numbers should be. Because if you segment the data against who's ask or who's answering it, you all of a sudden have a really good picture of, okay, well, I'm going after this user and their willingness to pay is here. Therefore, we should set our prices up. And to end, the one biggest mistake people make is they try to be everything to all people. So I might have a cohort of customers or potential customers that are willing to pay $100 and that's the one that they retain and they're, they're loved and they love the product and everything like that. And then I have a cohort willing to pay $50 and most people, their answer is, oh, let's put it at 75 and you're like, well, now I'm too too expensive for one group, and I'm not um, I'm too cheap, or not necessarily too cheap, but I'm not really maximizing revenue on the other group. And in that situation, what you should do is you should be like, we're going to be at hundred dollars, and the fifty dollar cohort, we're just not going to sell to them because they're not great customers for us. And so you can't be everything to all people, and that's that's a big mistake a lot of people make when they get into the numbers and they get into setting up their pricing as well. Okay, um, so. Would you actually say that that uh, for SaaS, then uh, asking customers is the most effective uh, choice in, 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 in testing and figuring out? Or Yeah, I think doing what I like to do is do this, re do qualitative research, talk to 10 to 15. Like you're going to start with a question, right? And the question might be should we raise our prices? If so, by how much, right? You want a tight question, right? And this is like basic customer research, basic market research kind of format. Then I want to go qualitatively, not lead the witness, but I want to go talk to some customers and, you know, hey, I got some questions about value and pricing. And 
people love to get on those calls because they're like, well, they're a little sensitive to like pricing, right? And so you're going to ask some questions. You're going to get get some information. You're going to ask some of the questions I talked about. Maybe you ask some more qualitative questions. And then I start to see in the 10 to 15 people that I talk to, I'm starting to see some trends, right? And that might affect what I'm asking or how deep I'm going or the method I want to use. But then to validate that further, and for some people, you might only have 50 customers total in the world. But if you do qualitative conversations with 10 to 15, I I can start to extrapolate beyond that because I'm not gonna be able to send a survey because I'm, I'm like doing one-on-one conversations. But if you have like hundreds, if not thousands of potential customers, let alone tens of thousands, then I want what I want to do is I want to put together a survey, like, and I basically want to like structure these questions in a way based off of the feedback I got qualitatively. And I want to send that out. And then I'm just trying to get massive data that I can like segment on whatever I need to do. So I'll cut that data up based on, you know, a bunch of factors, whatever factors I think are going to influence swings and willingness to pay or something like that. Then you're going to start to see some trends and then you need to earn your paycheck and make a decision. And you need to be like, okay, it seems like we could justify a 50% price increase, but we had all those bugs last month and we went down. I think we're gonna, we need to wait two months and maybe just do a 30% increase, blah, 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 blah. And then let's go figure out the communication and such. That's how like the process is. Some folks will want to insert basically launching the new pricing just to new customers for a bit because those customers don't have a history. Um, and so basically like, well, let's see what happens to our conversion numbers for two months, right? And they'll just launch the new pricing. That'll be kind of like their test. It's more of a, it's a bit of an A-B test, um, you know, in terms of time. Um, and that'll give them the confidence then to go back to their existing customers and potentially raise prices. But you got to be obviously careful with how you work, work through the data, but there is a jump from the data, like the, the science per se, to the art of you making essentially a product decision of what that pricing change should look like. And, and, and if I change my pricing and I, I want to roll it out, um, should I roll it out to all customers at a certain point? Or like, I mean, many, many products have grandfathered pricings, right? Is that, yeah. Is that a good strategy? I think, uh, here's, here's when it's a good strategy. Here's when it's a bad strategy. Uh, so first, when is it a good strategy to to uh, legacy or grandfather your customers? One, if it is deeply ingrained in your culture and your values that you are like always going to keep them at the same price, um, but truly ingrained, like you do similar things to this, then fine. Um, it also is okay. It's not necessarily the right thing to do, in my opinion, but it's okay to do it if you have massive logo TAM. If you have a potential customer base of millions of potential customers, you can kind of get away with like grandfathering because ultimately like there's enough logos out there at the new price to kind of grow. The problem is, and here's when it's bad, is most companies don't have that. And so even if they have these values of like, we don't want to be the company that like raises prices on people, it's like, again, people know things cost things. And they also, your product has theoretically improved over years and you've never done a price increase. So the value differential is off, meaning you've provided a lot more value, but you've kept people at the existing price. And from a tactical perspective, it gets really gnarly because now you've grown to 5, 10 million ARR, but you've gotten the, the not maybe the easy, but the easier part of market share. Like getting each incremental new customer actually gets harder because, you know, depending on how your marketing goes, like it's it's really hard to get 
100% market share. So if you're not going to get more market share, you're basically saying, hey, this base of customers who are happy are getting more value. We're just choosing not to take advantage of that growth lever. And most of the time, it's because we have a false sense of, oh, they're going to be upset when they're not going to be upset at all. Like, there's going to be a couple of people upset because, oh, you didn't answer their support ticket, but you raised their price. But that that's that's not, we don't make decisions based on that one person, right? So I think that it's it's fine for your earliest of earliest of customers. If you have some um, like zombie MRR, meaning like customers who are inactive or something like that, and you don't want to like tip the boat or anything, maybe you don't, you know, email them about this. But for most customers, if your NPS is over 20, you've done your pricing research uh, and you realize there is a delta there, um, you should raise your prices. Um, because the, the last thing I'll say before I shut up again is like, you probably did not set your prices correctly at all. You got into a room, you were like, oh crap, what should we do? Oh, well, Basecamp did this or this competitor did this, but your competitor didn't do their homework at all. So you're copying the dumb kid in class when you're looking at your competitor pricing. Like no one does their pricing research, right? So all of a sudden you're sitting there and you're like, okay, well, we set this price and then you get customers, but those customers maybe were willing to pay more and the product improves, so maybe they're willing to pay more. So long story short, I think you have to you have to use your best judgment, but like from a math perspective, it is it is not a good decision to to grandfather your customers long term. I think it, it's also because uh, because founders often being afraid of of uh, yeah. making making like really communicate which I get increase right yeah I totally get it like it's it's scary because you're like what if they don't love me what if they churn all these other things and it's like I mean that's fine but it's it's you're looking at your revenue and your growth right and most of the time like I'll see. I've seen a lot of price increases. And when they're done right, you know, their data and they're communicated properly, you will see an uptick in churn. But if you sent all of your receipts, emails on the same day of the month, that would be the highest churn month of your month or highest churn day of the month because you're reminding people they're, they're buying something, right? Even when you, especially when you send a price increase. So when you send that and they, like, you'll see an uptick in churn, but your revenue will go up, you know, substantially more. And what will happen is, is like the churn will actually go down below where your baseline was because you're kind of getting rid of like those customers who are on the fence anyways. You're kind of pulling forward some of that churn basically. And so it'll go down. And then if you don't change anything about your funnel, your sales and your marketing stays the same, it'll creep back up to that baseline. So it, yeah, there's an uptick. Um, I think that the communication is so crucial here though because you have to make the communication about them. It can't be about you. Like if you're like, hey, our costs went up, inflation, blah, blah, blah. People are going to revolt like who didn't even want to churn because there's no like communication of, hey, there's this value. We're going to reinvest in making the product great for you, all this other stuff, which is super, super crucial. Um, but most of the time when you communicate like that, people accept it, you know, really, really well. So... Don't play victim of recession. <laughs> yeah, 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 don't do it. Well, because um, your customers don't care about your costs. They care about their costs, right? And so my reaction is like, wait, so it's tough for me right now and it's tough for you, but it's going to be tougher for me because it's tough for you? Like, that doesn't make sense, right? Um, so yeah, it's just, you just got to be careful with that type of stuff. What do you think about um, tier-based pricing versus usage-based? Uh, like, is, is, do you see like a, a certain trend or... Like, I mean, recently, like I hear a lot about usage-based um, 
is that because lots of people are also tired about like classical PLG SaaS pricings or? Mm. I think that um, some sort of value metric beats tiered based pricing on every measure. Um, And you can combine the two, right? So we see plenty of pricing where it's like, you know, this tier is per user, but it includes these features. If you upgrade here, you get these features for each user and so on and so forth. Um, I think it just depends on the type of product. Like, you know, again, AWS or like, you know, um, um, I was going to say Vimeo, but not Vimeo, but like AWS, like there's, there's, it's like pure consumption, right? Pure usage. But I think a value metric doesn't have to strictly be usage, right? Like our retain product that lowers churn automatically, like we charge based on how much money we recover for you. It's not really a usage metric. It's more of like, here's the value you're getting and we're able to charge perfectly on that value. Um, so I think it's that that is always best. Sometimes you want to put it in tiers because sometimes people don't want like, a per API call type pricing. They want like a batch, like every hundred API calls, or they want, you know, basically a range, like between zero and 10,000 API calls, price A, between 10,000 and one and 25,000 price B. So you just kind of have to figure that out a little bit depending on your customer base, but there should be some sort of usage or consumption-based metric in, in everyone's pricing. Um, consumer companies, it gets a little bit difficult just because um, most consumer companies like, it's just harder um, to do consumption-based pricing, um, but if you can do it, you should do it. How, how do you think about, um, I mean, usage-based kind of leads you to the fact that people really have to use your product, right? I mean, I give you like a, one example where I'm always a bit pissed if I see it in companies like Miro, <laughs> for example. It's a, it's a great product, yeah. right? But yeah, yeah. It's like a virus, right? I mean, you just introduce it and tomorrow everyone's using it uh, once and then no one is using it anymore. And then you pay for, I don't know, 200 users per per month without ever having 200 users. So is that something that is there to stay or do you think this will go away because people will just be smart enough um, and, 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 and understand what's happening? Yeah. So there are certain... I don't know if that's a usage-based problem. Well, it is a usage-based problem, but it's a little bit different. Like there are some products that you just bake into the price of a team member or an employee, right? So like Gmail, right? Like you don't question Gmail, right? Because people are using it, all that kind of stuff. I think like the problem with like a Miro or some of these other products sometimes is like you have the phenomenon where you have really active users and then you have this other group of like lurkers who are basically looking at the, you know, the output. They're like, they're not active. They just look at stuff, right? And in that case, that's that's a problem for Miro and these other products because they have the reaction that you're having, which is like, wait a minute, we use this once. Why are we paying like a subscription fee, you know, for all these users? And so I think that in that case, there are some products in that space where they don't charge per user. They charge per like, you know, I, I, I'm going to, you know, butcher this, this, this now, but like they charge based on the number of boards or they charge based on the number of like, you know, files or those types of things. Um, and that, that typically bridges this gap between active workflow type products like, oh, Google Workspaces, Salesforce for a salesperson, et cetera, and products that don't necessarily have everyone 
on the same level of usage, right? I think if you can get closer to like what the actual value is, it's better. Typically, user-based pricing is not the answer unless everyone is going to have a different experience based on their user. So user-based pricing came from when we sold perpetual licenses, basically it was like, all right, we do this SaaS thing now, how should we do it? Well, we priced based on license, so let's just do users. But for most companies, that's not really where the value is. I think Miro, that issue is more of like, you guys don't want to use it across the entire customer base or the entire uh, employee base. So like, that's why you don't want to pay for it rather than like, we have chosen to use Miro over, you know, some of the other tools that are out there. Yeah, recently, uh, it just reminds me of a, of a discussion I once had with a founder um, who was, like his product is, uh, it, it's, it's actually like Pulse and Slack um, and you pay like, I don't know, $50 per month per, per user actually, like per creator. Yeah. Um, and, and then you have a limit on monthly responses or something. And, and, and he just told me that like he wants to like move that to like a way different pricing where you only pay, I don't know, $3 per user, which is like really, really low in comparison. Right. Um, and, yeah. and you then just pay per action, um, or you really pay mm. per, per user that somehow interacts with those polls, which I think is, is much smarter. Right. Um, yeah, it, it really depends. Like normally there are some of these products and this sounds like one of them where like it just gets really hard because you have these different constituencies that are fragmented, right? Like some people are power users, some are not. And I don't know, like a lot of companies they'll do like read-only users are included. Um, but then what if I did one interaction, right? Like what if I did one little interaction? Like am I really an active user like that I end up paying full price? And so it gets difficult and it really depends on the product, but this is where you, you do need to think through like clever solutions, basically like, like you're talking about. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, what do you think about monthly billing versus, uh, annual billing? Uh, like, I mean, lot, lots of SaaS products like, uh, offer 20% off or something. Is that like a common strategy that you would also recommend or? Yeah, I think that, um, Annual com customers and quarterly customers, they typically have like hundreds of percent higher lifetime value. Um, and it should, that should be intuitively make sense because basically what they're doing is they're, you know, committing to a year so they don't churn within that year um, versus a monthly customer where, you know, there's, there's potential for churn every single month, theoretically. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of like one, getting, as many monthly customers onto longer term plans um, within within reason. So here's kind of the bounds. I think for me, I I'm a big fan of like asking them when they sign up, but realizing that like you shouldn't be getting most people there because they haven't had the value, they haven't experienced your product. And then every like after that first month, and in B2B SaaS, probably up to about 10 months of their their monthly life in the product. That's when I want to go to them probably every like 60 to 90 days and try to get them on an annual plan. Once you're over like eight to 10 months, they're, they're kind of committed to the product. So I'm fine with them, you know, paying the extra, you know, extra monthly revenue. Um, but yeah, it's it's a game of lifetime value. I think that a lot of people, you know, a lot of people aren't fighting as, as much as they should. What do you think about the freemium versus free trial? Uh, yeah, I'm a big... I'm a big proponent of freemium now. The reason is, is because like to give you some data points, customers who convert from freemium typically have much lower CAC, much higher um, lifetime value. And then ultimately, um, 
are are um, you know retained at a much much better rate. Uh, NPS is also higher because so much of sales is timing. And what freemium does is it it lets you nurture that customer until they're truly ready to convert versus a 14-day or 21-day free trial where they're like being forced to, you know, think through things. Um, when it comes to um, yeah, when it comes to that type of, you know, that 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 type of free trial where like it's some artificial time horizon, right? Um, or like a sales process where it's also kind of artificial and then the salesperson doesn't get the sales. So they kind of like maybe come back in three to six months. Um, you have no better content than your product and giving some sort of freemium product away, especially in a market where CAC is up 130% over the past 10 years. Like it's, it's, it's such a win. Um, but I think the problem is most people think about it as part of their pricing or their revenue model. Um, freemium is part of your acquisition strategy. You want to think about freemium like a premium ebook um, versus anything anything else. So people should see their product essentially as advertising as well, right? And then yeah. convert them through the user interface when they are on the on a freemium plan. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be through the user interface, but um, it can be through you know still sales, right? It just it just depends on like. The product and in you know how you're how you're thinking about things, but yeah, long story short, like you should you should be thinking through like that experience, you know, as as much as humanly possible. Yeah, 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 it makes sense. I mean, especially if you have a product where people maybe don't see the value at the very beginning, right? Yeah, exactly. Where you want to charge, I don't know, twenty nine dollars a month, and then uh, you you can just not convince people. Let's say you're building a URL shortener or something, right? Yeah. You can't convince people um, because they don't see the value in URL shortener straight away, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They need to use it for a while, and if your if your freemium product can create some sort of lock in, that's great too. You know, like a URL shortener, like maybe you get I don't know, fifty free URL shortened. Well, as soon as I have like more than fifty, and I lose maybe access in some way, like. All of a sudden, like that's 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 lock in, like because I've used it so many times that I want to make sure I keep using it. Or you get a custom domain, right? You can use your custom domain and yeah. then <laughs> something like that, right? <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so, should I, as a founder, define my uh, customer personas? Yeah, definitely. But but that that's also something that that lots of founders don't do. Yeah, right? yeah. founders. Or how do you see that? Yeah, we. We don't like to take our medicine or eat our broccoli because uh, it is it is not like it's not as sexy as like oh let's uh, you know let's ship this or let's you know figure out this new thing and so I think that yeah personas and segments are super super important like not because the, everyone thinks they're, they're oh it's going to be perfect and it's like they're probably not going to be perfect because you're not going to spend the time or money to like make them perfect but and even then the market can shift. But what you're trying to do with your personas is you're you're basically trying to get to a point where um, you end up like acting, or they end up acting kind of as a constitution within your business. So like when you're having an argument about your roadmap or you're having an argument about like what marketing plan to do, it's like, well, we're targeting, you know, this type of persona, we're not targeting this type of persona and that type of persona doesn't go to this event or doesn't need that feature, right? And those are the types of conversations you should be having. I think a lot of times the conversations around product and stuff like that kind of devolve into like, well, we're going to get so many more customers with this. And it's like, you have no evidence to suggest that. And personas allow you to kind of have more of that evidence and kind of structure those arguments or those debates in a much, much better fashion. Thanks a lot. Uh, really like interesting how 
close your your thoughts are to 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 the ones of of like product discovery for example right where you also like talk a lot to your customers you build personas you really think deeply um and 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 communicate deeply uh and and that, that's that's really like a seeing it as as a process um and understanding the value of that process is uh is, is mind-blowing yeah no it's but i think it's i mean nothing i said was like like there's some concrete things that i'm able to like say because of the data but like it's just thinking through these problems from first principles that's really what it is and you know thinking through like what makes the most sense or what doesn't make the most sense and i think a lot of times we we both underthink and overthink things which which is part of being a founder and part of building right like there's plenty of things that like you know we get wrong or i do wrong but it's it's it shouldn't be for like a lack of thinking through the problem typically. And I think a lot of times we just react as founders um, or as just executives and and we would do best by like, okay, let's, let's like think through it and then try to be as proactive as possible, which, you know, sometimes you don't have the luxury to do, but you know, that's, that's why you get lots of at bats when you're building a company of being wrong and right, depending on what it is. Coming to my last question. Um, it's more of a surprise, like a former NSA colleague of yours uh, told me about that, that Linux tool that you've been using at uh, NSA. Um, it's it's uh, called timemachine.sh um, and you can just use it to, to, to travel back in time. And, and he actually gave me the code um, and, and I shoot it up on my laptop now, uh, open a console and um, type in time machine. 2020 2012 um which is the year when you got started with profit well um and we now travel back in time and uh we we observe yourself for a little while while you were sitting in front of your laptop and uh like crunching numbers a lot and you now have the chance to actually whisper something into young patrick's ears uh what <laughs> would it be uh it's so hard because it's it's I've thought of this before, but it's like I think what I would say is um, focus on team and hiring ten x more than you're thinking of doing it. Um, and I wouldn't have listened to myself. <laughs> like I just <laughs> I think it's I think it's the classic like um, you know we everyone tells you culture and people are really important, especially as a first time founder. Like people will say like, oh, it's going to be the culture. It's going to be the people. And I just don't think you get it in the beginning. Like you just don't understand what that means. You're like, no, we're going to fail because of product or marketing or sales or something. But then you realize like, okay, it's, you know, you're, when you're building a company that the product is the company, right? And the, the, the features, and this is going to go downhill really quickly, the features are the people. And so it's really, really important to kind of build that out. And so, yeah, I would, that's what I would say. And I, like I said, I don't, I don't think I would have listened. I would have needed to learn that lesson the hard way, but, uh, that's, that's probably what I would have said. Very helpful. Lots of, uh, interesting insights into pricing, uh, and, 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 and how to do and, 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 and not to do. <laughs> thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Great man. day. Bye. We'll see you. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Alphalist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick.
AlphaList is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or, as we say on AlphaList, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.